Today we've got questions on Chesterton, the U.S. Senate, why so many Thomas disparage Scotism, and the top five most Catholic countries on the planet today. Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a non-judgmental Charles Coulomb. Yes, I, I guess I am. You know, it's really wonderful being non-judgmental. I... I don't really have to worry about anything anymore. I used to get so upset. I used to try to impose values, meaning on persons, places, and things. But now that I'm utterly non-judgmental, everything's copacetic. Isn't that wonderful? That that is wonderful. I'm so happy for you. You seem a little brought down by this revelation. Don't be. It's a way of of showing that somehow, some way that all of us, no matter what we think we're saying, are really saying the same thing. So we're not individuals. Oh, we are. We're all individuals, but in precisely the same way. Everyone is unique in just the same manner. No two snowflakes are alike, but they're all snowflakes. No two Peter, uh, peanut brittle candies are the same, but they're all peanut brittle. No two chocolate chip cookies can ever be exactly identical, and yet they are. Is this helpful? I'm sensing a certain amount of, how do I say this, resentment on your part. Let that go. Here's what I want you to do. This is like a mental exercise. Take your hands. Okay, now that rage you're feeling at me right now. Okay, tighten your hands into fists of rage as tight as you can. Okay, now. Release them. Let them go. Ah, there goes all the tension, all the resentment. It's gone. Now don't you feel better? Don't you feel like, like you're, you're sailing along on a, on a breeze, completely contented, safe from all care? Isn't that better now? Hmm. It's, it's a little better. So while you're in this state, old Rose asked me to ask you about a raise. She feels she's not being paid enough, and she thought that now that you've achieved this state, you could give her more than $3 an hour. No. Okay, let's let's work with that. 
let's work with that. That's a start. We made a beginning. We broached the question. But now let's examine the answer. Now you say no, but what do we really mean when we say no? No is a negation. But you see, a negation isn't real. It's not a real thing. It's an absence of thingness. It's like a smile, a frown. A frown is just a smile upside down. So a no is really an inverted yes. So now all you have to do is drop the inversion. And there, there stands that beautiful yes. You're saying not just yes to Rose and her raise to $17.50 an hour. Not just that, but also yes to life. Yes to, to light, to goodness, to youth, to, 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 to happiness. You're, you're breaking the bonds that, that negativity have woven around you. And you're, and you're just becoming totally free. You've, you've low-key made a lot of judgment calls on my life that I'm not free, that I'm enslaved. Uh, Why I do thought you, you were not... Need, I'm not. Why do you feel the need to make these assertions about yourself? I never said you were enslaved. You did. Now let's go with this. What is the nature of this slavery? Let's break those bonds. If that's what you're feeling, it's time to break them. And if only seventeen fifty an hour, that's a cheap chain break. I like my chains. Yeah, but they're so expensive. <laughs> 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 Seventeen fifty an hour in old rows, and you know you're free as a bird. I'm not buying. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't buying when I'm peddling. <laughs> well, but how did it feel getting a blast of non-judgmentality from me? I feel like it's very calming for a few seconds, and then you're. And then the rest of the time, I'm just waiting for the non-judgmental calmness to pass and get oh, to. Oh, you, you think you think so? Yeah. Okay, fine. Throw me three different propositions you think will get me upset. Go ahead, rapid fire, and I will answer them with non-judgmentality. Go ahead. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Most annoying thing you can think of, and I will show you how to respond in a non-judgmental manner. Because I've learned over this past week how to be non-judgmental. I've learned the secret, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you how. Come up with the the. All right. Uh, do you dare to hope all men be saved? Do you dare to hope? Okay, okay, okay. Um, are you excited about what Governor Newsom is doing with California and, and the pro-choice movement and, and that kind of stuff? No. Who needs a tax base? Just that. <laughs> 
Dude, I'm watching you break. You are coming apart at the seams. No, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm totally not judgmental and accepting. I'm watching you vibrate from holding it in. You have number three. Give it your best shot. Um. Okay, I mean, okay. I if every anything's on the table. Okay. Yep. Give it your best shot. Um. Okay, I just have to gather myself. Okay. Um. Do you um. I mean, how do you feel about Pope Francis? Uh, Pope Francis's deal with China, with the the Catholic Church, and all the families that have been um, were underground, and now they have to deal with that. I guess it sucks to be them. Dude, you broke. You're, there's no way. There's no way, dude. There's no way. You you broke character. You I broke not, character. I yes, did not you judge. Did. <laughs> you? judge. Did I say one thing in regard to the the foister of this uh, of this event? No. No, I, I threw it all on the victims the way he does. Your lingo change. It sucks to be them. <laughs> well, it's a character. It's a character building challenge for them. Is that better? Okay. It's a character <sighs> building challenge for them, and they'll come out of this more holy, more appreciative, more loving of their God. If they survive. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm sure how that's how the Holy Father feels about it. And who am I to judge? After all, I'm not judgmental. Now, isn't the, the newer, kinder, non judgmental Charles better than the, the old battle axe? No. It, there, okay. There's like took care of that issue. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's just a bunch of hot air. Honestly, it's just like there. It's like you're an empty shell of a of a human being. Excuse me, I'm a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think I got to be so non non judgmental? I got my life coach uh, training this week. And let me tell you something. Those were 27 of the most intense minutes of my entire life. Wow. What you guys do? I said I won't judge, I won't judge, I won't judge for 27 minutes. Really? Mm, no. Wow. But it was a dollar a minute, so it was worth every penny. Wow. And now I have my, I have my certificate. I'm a licensed life coach. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't know. You're the wrong. You're in the wrong business here. You should be doing that life coach stuff. Let me tell you something. I now, as a licensed, certified life coach, I can do this for anybody. 
and I can charge all out. I mean, I, I, I can, I can uh, help people uh, as their circumstances require. I mean, and I'm fully certified, board certified. By what board? <laughs> the Clinica Popular of Managua, Nicaragua. Wow. Okay. Well, you got to get certified by somebody, don't you? You got to have all these quacks running around. It's like being a community activist. You got to go to school for that. You got to trade. Do you? Do you any, yes, of course. You think anybody can be a community activist? Yes. Well, there's that. <laughs> but so what? All right, forget it. I do have one important thing to point out, though. By the time our audience that they've gotten through all of this nonsense, uh, they uh, should know that the very first on Friday, the very first in the of the, all the different rites of the Catholic Church, it will be the Byzantine New Year, September first, the uh, the Feast of the Intinction, or Indiction rather, not Intinction, Indiction. Which means it's like for the Byzantines, it's like their first Sunday in Advent, the beginning of the new church year. Cool. Theirs is the uh, the Byzantines are the first, and we come in way at the, at the last first Sunday in Advent, which is the last few days of November. Uh, all the other rites of the church come in at different times in between those two. Wow. Armenian, Copt, Maronite, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They come in in between. Yeah, I knew. Well, I knew the Copt, uh, the Coptic Orthodox was longer because I know. In addition to that, they very strict. I mean, they, they put us to shame on their diet and abstinence. I, I feel. I want to say it's a vegan diet, like imposed. Um, yeah, they they you know the cops are they're funny. Uh, many many years ago, don't I don't want to shock anyone, but I uh, when I was in high school. I worked for the late lamented Father Theodore Wilcock, S.J., who was the Russian Rite uh, priest at El Segundo. And that's really who I learned about the Byzantine Rite from first, uh, Russian Catholics. And the thing is that he was the head of the Archdiocesan Ecumenical Commission. Well, he was associated with something called the Society of St. James of Jerusalem. And this consisted of uh, primarily Eastern Catholic, some Western Catholic, uh, Episcopalian, Polish National Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, which is the umbrella term for Copts, Armenians, Syriac, and uh, Ethiopians, and Malabar, um, and Assyrians. Uh, they they would have uh, once a month they'd have a gathering. Basically, everybody would claim the the, uh, the immaculate conception. No, the apostolic succession. They would have a, a luncheon, and there'd be a speaker and you know a eat and greet sort of thing. Well, the problem was that the cops would host it once a year, but whenever they hosted, it was inevitably during one of their fasts. So no matter how we tried to figure it out, whenever the cops would host it, there was always vegetarian stuff. Oh, right. Right. And it, and it really, now mind you, um, they, 
would generally eat only the vegetables. I mean, to be fair, when they would go to uh, when they would come to them, we always had to make sure we had vegetable stuff on hand for them. But um, and then, of course, there were certain times that during Lent and all that when everybody ate the same thing, and that was that was fine. But uh, those were interesting times. I learned a lot. I know some people say, oh, see what a liberal he is? He was an ecumenist from his teenagerhood. Yeah, well, lump it. <laughs> and right. I mean that in a very non-judgmental way. Of course, of course. All right. Uh, how about we get to the memes of production? All right. We just have uh, we just have two fun comments, so... Uh, so we, yeah, we were talking about a lot of unconditional acceptance, uh, last episode, uh, and Jared on YouTube says, uh, I want your unconditional acceptance is what officer Clancy tells some poor sap he's beating with the billy club. (laughs) (laughs) I want your unconditional acceptance, boil. Bam. (laughs) You got to accept me on my own terms. Bam. (laughs) Please officer. I accept you unconditionally. Are you sure? Bam. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. That's very true. Somebody somebody gets it. Yeah. And Jared, uh, I think Jared on Patreon, Patreon, he he certainly gets it because he says, Charles, who's hotter? Nancy Sinatra or Eleanor Clift? Oh, boy, that's, I'll tell you what, that's a tough one. Well, Eleanor is still, Eleanor is still hot. She's the the hot one. Oh, man. I mean, you can't, you can't top Eleanor Cliff for hotness, that's for sure. But Nancy does come in. I mean, Nancy today, not Nancy back in the 60s. When she was singing about summer wine. I heard uh, somebody got that stuck in his head last week. Yeah, you did. I got the song in my head, and I just couldn't get it out, and I was so angry. But I guess I'm just a victim of Off the Menu, to be honest, because I feel like this happens to viewers where we some crazy show happens, and we say some crazy stuff on on air, and it, it just sticks with them. Did Mercy Dotes help? I don't know what that is. I said you, you, you complained to me. Oh, that's what that is. Okay. Mersy dotes and dozy dotes and little lambsy divey, you kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? Mersy dotes and dozy dotes. Now, didn't that drive that out of your head? That that I mean, that, that's like trying to cure a headache with poison or something like that. <laughs> it always <laughs> that works. Just, I mean, that, that was next level. I, basically, Charles... I, Weaponize this other song. He's like, "Oh, is that in your head? Here, here's this song." And you know, thinking, surely this annoying tune is going to get in your head. You might as well put Sugar Shack, like, lead me to Sugar Shack. <laughs> I don't understand. I was trying to help you. It did the trick, didn't it? It it, it drove Summer White out of your head. Uh, no, it did. Well, no, well, because I I played like the first twenty seconds of the song, and then I immediately t- turned it off because I knew, <laughs> I knew what you were doing, and I knew that if I kept listening, I would have fallen for your trap. 
Trump, I was helping. <laughs> no, you were. I was. Mercy, don't seduce. You don't seduce. Stop love saying tonight. that. Just stop too. doing you. that. <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> Just. <laughs> That's just you have you accuse me of weaponizing it. <laughs> just straight up malice, Charles, as far as malice. I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to cleanse your mind of summer wine and you accuse me of malice. <laughs> you reached out and I offered help. And, and what do I get? I feel you like see. the way you help. Is I'm gonna ask for help to remedy your previous help, and all the while I'm going deeper down, deeper down the rabbit hole. You see the suspicions in your mind. I mean, you really—you've known me most of your life. I don't see why you react this way. Why do you? Why do you respond to my attempts to help in such a negative fashion? This is, I'm feeling a lot of negativity right now, and it's not a good feeling, I can tell you. Oh, no, what a shame. <laughs> Even that sarcastic tone, it hurts. I, 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 I feel so hurt. I mean, I, I, Mersey Dotes was always the go-to head cleanser, you know? <laughs> But, you know, there is a, a code to it, to Mersey Notes. There's a code to it. Now, it's always spelled Mersey, M-A-I-R-Z-Y, Mersey Dotes, G-O-A-T-S. But that's because of the way they sing it. What it actually says is mares, as in female horses, mares eat oats and does, as in female deer, Does eat oats, and little lambs eat ivy. A kid, a little goat, will eat ivy too, wouldn't you? So see, it's not just nonsense. Mersey don't sit down, see don't sit lambs eat ivy, a kid eat ivy too, wouldn't you? See? (laughs) Okay. 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 <laughs> you see so, a little. All right. No, I no, can tell no, you're feeling. You don't need to explain that song upset. anymore. I got it. We all got it, Charles. We you understand really the song. Take a really breath. deep. Really deep. Take a breath. Take a deep breath. Let it out. <laughs> now let it all settle. All right. Now feel the chair that you're sitting in. All right. The table. Put your hands on the table. All right. Now you, you, you can close your eyes or just stay with me, whichever you prefer. Now envision the chair, envision the screen you're in front of, settle. All right, now make sure your feet are flat on the floor. Now you're grounded, you're centered, okay? You're one with Mother Earth. You're like a a tall tree blending from the heavens to the earth, from the earth to the heavens. You're like a channel of positive energy going back and forth, keeping the cosmos in its uh, circular uh, trip around itself. And you're, you're maintaining reality. Every molecule of the cosmos is in order right now. 
everything is perfect, everything is copacetic, you are one with everything. Not unlike the what the Zen master said to the hot dog vendor. All right. Now do you feel better? Feel you know relaxed. what you need? What? You need a you need a mantra. Will will any mantra do, Charles? I mean, no, no, I've got one for you. Repeat after me, Mayor. No. Literally, no. No, I'm not doing this. <laughs> this is not. No, see, this is one of those things where where you've gotten me in a rhythm of of acquiescing to everything you say, and then just doing what you do. Or put your hands up, put your hands down, close your eyes, this and that. And it's just going to lead me into a bad place, okay? And no, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you a mantra. No, I don't want your mantra. That, 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 no, we're, we're, I don't want that. <laughs> what do you think the mantra is going to be? I, I know what the mantra is going to be. It's going to be that the lyrics to that stupid song. <laughs> well, you said any mantra. The answer is no. All right, fine. Forget it. I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll Sling my hash somewhere else. I don't care. <laughs> you know, truly, a life coach is not appreciated in his own country. Go go and trap someone else over there in Austria. You're around a lot of uh, gullible young people. In, in, in yeah, unassuming... but they're, they're, they're no fun. They're no fun. <laughs> <laughs> they fall in this garbage too easily. I mean, <laughs> bum, bah, bah, bah. no, no, I... I, honestly, you know, sometimes I have gotten. I, I've, I've, I love peddling this sort of nonsense as, you know, as a joke. But every now and then, I have gotten hoisted on my own petard. You know, when you're, well, yeah, you know, when you're at a Hollywood party, right? And you say some moronic thing like, well, one of my favorites, strangers are only friends who haven't met yet, or something like that. And, you know, usually people grab their stomachs in pain and that kind of thing, right? But every now and then, Run to someone who goes, wow, that is so true. And that's that's what I mean by hoist on your own petard. I actually got that. I got that with a young girl who I said, because I was um, someone who I work with, and she's just fresh out of college. And I, she was confused. And... Um, She's confused about something. I said, it's okay. Confusion is the guardian <laughs> of truth. And she rolled with it. And I was like, no, don't. Ah, this is, no, 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 no. Don't do this, honey, please. Don't do this. <laughs> well, you know, your your brother, though, he had the ultimate. I've told the story a million times, but he really had the ultimate because he and I were both at a party. And I made some idiotic comment like that. And a, a person with brains said, what the hell does that mean? And your brother says, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have to. It's deep. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and the poor guy, <laughs> really, <laughs> he, he, he looked sad. Although uh, on another occasion, uh, I myself was, was sort of victimized in this way. The illustrious Tequila Mockingbird uh, invited me to a party at her place, and I went. And she introduced me to, you know, 
well, my friend here knows a lot about religions. He's a devout Catholic and all that. And so she goes off and her friend says to me, without a particle of humor, and this is exactly the kind of thing I might say as a joke, but the fellow says, well, I'm a fallen away Unitarian. And I looked at him and I said, well, I guess you didn't have very far to fall, did you? He took no notice and he goes, yeah, my parents were really broken up when I left the church, but you know, I just, please don't tell me anymore. But he went on and on and on. You know, his parents were devout Unitarians. Their faith meant a lot to them, but he just couldn't share it with them. What did he abandon Unitarianism for? I don't know. Agnosticism, atheism, I, I don't know. Although he was cloudy enough. I mean, the problem with abandoning the Unitarian faith is how would you know? How could you tell? Right. No, of course. So, I mean, the the unconscious humor was thick on the ground there, but I, I couldn't say anything. Wow. You heard about the Unitarian lady, though, from Boston. Well to do, of course. And she was asked why she didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. And her response was, I simply can't believe in a God who would name his only begotten son after my gardener. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Moving on, let's get let's let's move forward and let's get book of the week. Book of the week. Are you ready? Can you dig it? Oh yeah. Do you think you can handle the book of the week? I hope so. I do too, because this week we've got a real obscure one for you. Hobberty Dick by Catherine Briggs. This is a fantasy novel. Yes, young adult. And it is about a brownie that lives in a house in the 17th century England and who goes through all sorts of adventures trying to... Uh, his, his, his old family, a royalist, and they come to a bad end because the, uh, the Puritans have taken over. But it's left to this poor, poor brownie to try to protect his family against the evil and witchcraft in the neighborhood. Yeah, sorry, I, I'm looking it up. Um, yeah, it, it is indeed obscure, right? 4.8 rating, but only 18 reviews on Amazon. That's really, really surprising. Um, so, It's a good book. If you like The Children of Green, though, you'll like Hobbert E. Dick. And that was written when? Well, in the 60s or 70s, I guess. Okay. All right. Great. Um, very good. Uh, what else do we have? Okay. I guess we'll, we're just going to move on. Um, before the questions, we have a, a comment. A comment from a longtime patron. Um, and I thought I, I'd read his... Uh, he's... Um, it's going to be really interesting. So he says, uh, so Eric says, I'm a little behind on my off the menu viewing, but I just watched the one where Charles spoke about knighthood in the modern context. I'm actually a member of the Templar revival order that he spoke about. It's called Militia Templi. I am a novice currently. 
We are essentially a semi-monastic community for lay people. We pray the Roman office in Latin daily, all except for matins, and go to retreats several times a year. We do take the monastic vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, as well as a fourth vow to defend the church when we are knighted by the Grand Master, though these are understood to be in the context of our vocation as laymen. The URL is www.militiatemply.net if anyone is interested. Uh, and he says there are only a handful of knights in the USA currently, so we are pretty small. Uh, feel free to ask any questions, and God bless you. Eric. I, uh, I am looking at their website right now. Uh, they really, uh, you know, as I said, they, uh, their grandmaster was the fellow who, uh, Count Marcello Cristofani della Magione. He was the chap that chased off Tony Blair when he tried to receive communion uh, before he became Catholic and while he was prime minister. Uh, nice. It's, I'm sorry? Nice. I mean, that, that takes yeah. guts, right? Like, that's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it took real guts. So, I... Um, uh, if you feel called to that sort of life, uh, gentlemen, uh, I would definitely look into it. So, um, I'll just ask a couple questions in case... Because... Um, in case somebody have the same questions that I do. So, you're taking a monastic vow of chastity, so that's the single life that you yep. need to be yep okay hmm. the uh well let's see let's go to their website uh vocations and then, and then po i don't understand how poverty is going to work um i don't know either uh well it's it uh actually here it is uh, before inquiring into the Militia Templi, one should be aware of and capable of fulfilling the basic obligations of a member of our order. These minimally include praying the 1962 Divine Office in Latin daily, daily mental prayer and making frequent use of the devotional suggested by the Church, going to communion regularly and confession monthly, having and regularly meeting with their spiritual director, making three retreats annually, one during Lent, one during Advent, and one two-day retreat, being engaged in, a in an apostolate, which is constant, and presumably, it doesn't say this, but I would guess one that was approved by the uh, superiors, tithing 3% of their taxable income in, uh, to the militia, there's your poverty, traveling for preceptory meetings every three years for several days, regularly meeting with their commandery, if there's one erected in their area, continuously studying the Catholic faith and chivalry, being subject in obedience to the superiors and the brotherhood, Providing a bold public witness of the Catholic faith always. So you did that while... Um, now it says it says some Catholic men who regularly receive the sacraments are in good standing with the Catholic Church. So whether that precludes marriage, I don't know. Yeah, because... Yes, it says they are both married and celibate. Right, yeah, because there's chastity in, in both the married life and the single life. I just wanted to clarify that one. You know? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, and the um, one of the uh, interesting things they try to live the uh, the Templar uh, life uh, 
without claiming to be, you know, any sort of faux connection to the original Templars, which a lot of groups do. There are actually only two orders of knighthood that have any real uh, connection to the Templars. Uh, who? Uh, the Portuguese Order of Christ, which is uh, now given out by the president of the country, and the Spanish Order of Montesa, which is given out by the king. Hmm. All right. Uh, so since we're doing plugs, I'm going to do another plug that none other than Andrew from New Jersey sent in. So Andrew uh, from New Jersey, um, he says, Hello and greetings from the number one ranked state in terms of population density, the great state of New Jersey. I actually didn't believe that, so I, I actually fact-checked that, and uh, that's, ac- that's accurate. Really impressive, Andrew. Uh, Before my question, I wanted to do a bit of a plug, as it were, for a cause near and dear to me. This is not allowed to do on the show. Please feel free to disregard. A recent discussion on the show about cemeteries and what to do therein inspired me to bring up a pet cause that some New Jersey folk have started to help the poor souls. The Purgatorial Society of St. Andrew Avellino was founded in New Jersey earlier this year with the goal of emptying purgatory. Wow. For a small annual due, society members may enroll an unlimited amount of deceased. 100% of the annual dues are used to organize and provide for the four yearly requiem masses offered for enrollees. As more members join the, join, the goal is to offer the requiem masses more frequently. The society celebrated its first requiem mass earlier this month in Crestwood, New York, and the next is scheduled for November 2023. In addition to the annual dues, society members are also required to say a brief daily prayer for the enrollees. This prayer can be found on the website. Members need not live in New Jersey or its environs to join. Anyone can join from anywhere in the world. If you have ever wondered what you can do for the poor souls in purgatory, this is something that could truly help them. In days gone by, purgatorial societies were quite common and did immense good for the church suffering. Sadly, there are not nearly as many still functioning, but the Purgatorial Society of St. Andrew Avellino seeks to revive this tradition and help our, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ who cannot help themselves. Please visit purgatorialsociety.org to join or find out more. Okay. Wow, that, that's really cool. Um, I was happy yeah. to, to promote that. Um, you know, one question for me, I, so I love the goal. Uh, right was straight up empty purgatory, but I mean the question is how many priests does it take to how many how many priests and how many masses does it take to empty purgatory? So I hope you guys get more priests, right? It, that would be a big goal, right, Charles? Like to yeah, of course. To, and and mind you, the fortunately they're not the only purgatorial association. There there are others, as as he says, there used to be a lot. Uh, but to this day, they still have the, uh, for instance, the Purgatorial Society of New York is still with us. Hmm. Uh, I wonder if there's one in the LA area. Now, mind you, as he says, to join a Purgatorial Society, you don't have to be resident and you can join a number of them too. If you, if you really wanted to enroll. And so the enrollees, that's. 
you have a deceased person in mind? Is that what it's saying? In there? Yeah. 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 I mean, you enroll personally, but so uh, you know they've got several. They have one in Saint at Saint Gerard Mayela Mayela uh, Church in uh, L.A. Uh, they've got a, a Purgatorial Society at that parish, and then in Hawaiian Gardens, Saint Peter Chanel Catholic Church, which is run by the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. They have a purgatorial society. They meet every Thursday night, and uh, you're invited to come and join them. So, I mean, it's it's when you can, you know, St. Cletus Parish in LaGrange, Illinois. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of them. Uh, but again, not as many as there used to be. Then some dioceses have them, like the Syracuse. Diocesan Purgatorian Society at St. Mary's Parish and Shrine is a pious association, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they have a, a monthly mass for the deceased. Uh, that's in uh, Oswego, New York. The uh, Amazing. I, uh, you know, it's when I look into things like this, it's stuff that, uh, and again, I'm being judgmental, but it's, this is the kind of thing that really makes me happy is, you know, here are all of the dreadful, awful stuff. And we forget that people are doing really good concrete things, uh, to try to make things better. Um, and truly, praying for the holy souls is something we can all do anytime. Uh, they benefit from it, and ultimately will benefit from it. Yeah. All right. Uh, Andrew says it now. My question. Oh, hard part. Okay, fine. Be that way. I don't care. A while back, during the time when the cause for G.K. Chesterton's canonization was being squashed by the local bishop for alleged anti-Semitism. No doubt the bishop of the diocese of Weenie Central. Do you remember that one, Charles? You remember that 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 bishop? Wait, remember when that happened? When he was, he said that. I do. Peter yeah. Doyle. He couldn't. He couldn't tease out a cultist. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, there are annual pilgrimages to Chesterton's grave. Uh, I plan to go there myself next month. So. Okay. All right. Uh, a certain Catholic commentator, who I will not name as to not cause a distraction, also casted doubt on the sainthood of the Apostle of Common Sense, but for a completely different reason. This well-known figure said that he had his own doubts, as Chesterton was extremely fat. He also said that he smoked and drank to excess. The three of these combined led him to believe that Chesterton was enslaved to the capital vice of gluttony. For this reason, may not be the saint many of us think he is. What does Charles think of this claim? Is it laughable well, or is there some truth to it? Should all chubby but otherwise pious Catholics be shaking in their boots right now? It's a... Uh, I actually, I had to do some research on this one. I actually couldn't find who, whoever said this, which I'm glad. 
Um, I couldn't either, but here's something interesting. Dale Alquist, who's the head of the Chesterton Society, said, I remember hearing Dale Alquist speak on Chesterton's temperance briefly. He said that GKC had a glandular condition, which was reflected in his weight, despite eating very little. And that there was only one reputable story he had heard of Chesterton having drank too much alcohol. Smoking was not mentioned. Well, St. Pius X smoked. Yeah. So I guess if you smoke, like St. Pius X, you're not a saint. That's a real slippery slope with smoking. I mean, it's just like... If you're a modern, it's evil. Modern persons, because see, you got to understand something. We moderns are the acme. We've been trained over decades now to believe that smoking is just a vice. It, and, and it's just terrible. It's, it's, and drinking is much better. And, and it's just also awful. Because, you see, the modern mind, if the, we can call it that, I mean, we can call it modern, but just calling it a mind we may have difficulty with. But in any case, especially with Americans, we Americans, you see, are really puritanical. We're Calvinists at the bottom of it all. But the problem is we've become so depraved. we depraved Calvinists. Now, when a Calvinist is depraved, he can't uh, go on a moral crusade against the things his ancestors thought were bad. So he has to go on crusades against others because he's got to be on a moral crusade against something. So what does he do? Smoking is an easy, low-hanging target. I mean, especially, especially if, so everybody knows Dale Alquist is the guy. He's yep. written, we sell all his Chesterton books. Everybody knows he's the guy. I've watched he's him on expert. EWTN. And if he's saying that and you even, you haven't even like, like done any research. I personally feel like, anyway. One, as I was looking over a set of these things just now, one person said, Alchris isn't exactly an unbiased source. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you a little something. No <laughs> expert on anything is an unbiased source. <laughs> I because, want see, you, you don't become an expert on something. I want someone who really doesn't care about a certain topic but has dedicated their life to the topic but is per perfectly... Uh, but doesn't care about doesn't it. Doesn't care about it. <laughs> you know, somebody who's devoted his life to studying something and doesn't care about it, <laughs> There's a word that comes to mind for such a person, and that word is sap. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to waste your life studying something you don't give tuppence about, uh, I'm sorry for you. I really am. <laughs> I, yeah, I've got to go to another Gardenia convention. What? Yeah, you know, Gardenia fanciers, readers of Gardenia's, Makers of new varieties of gardenias. Yeah, that's what I'm into. Really? You don't seem very enthusiastic. I'm not. As far as I'm concerned, you've seen one gardenia, you've seen them all. But you can, you know all of the different gardenia varieties by saying, oh, yeah, that one over there, it's a Queen Isabel. And that one over there, Smith Brothers. And that one, oh, that's a, a fly. No, no, that, that's, uh, that's a double shamrock. You know all this, but you don't care tuppence about 
gardenias. No, no. Honestly, I've been studying gardenias my whole life, and if every last one of those stupid things died, I wouldn't care. <laughs> that man has my idea of hell on earth. <laughs> you see him surrounded with his stacks of books on gardenias <laughs> and, and, and his catalogs. And, I mean, what makes dedicating your life to the study of anything is passion. And I have to admit, I am really interested in people who are passionate about things, even if I'm not interested. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was driving with a friend through our great Midwest. We were in South Dakota, and we came to the National Tractor Museum. Benny, I got to admit something to you. I'm going to admit this on the air in front of our audience. Okay. I don't have a deep interest in tractors. Did, did you drive through windy fields to get there? Because you, you got some windy fields right oh, now. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah they, they, you can hear the whip. Yeah. So the thing is, uh, that guy was so on fire about tractors. <laughs> it was hard not to share his enthusiasm. I mean, I didn't remember anything he said when I got out of there. But it wasn't. It didn't feel like a waste of time at all because he was so. It was obviously a big deal to him. Now imagine that he had had his breadth of knowledge of tractors and didn't care about tractors. So you're right. Dale Alquist is probably not an unbiased source. But nobody who really knows the subject is unbiased. So give it up. Yeah. So any I mean, I think we've kind of already said it, but let's just let's just put a bow on it. So what does Charles think of this claim? Is it laughable? Is there some truth to it? Should all chubby people but otherwise pious Catholics be shaking in their boots right now? Yes, they, they should be shaking in their boots. Um because that so much nonsense is talked about. I mean, Thomas Aquinas was big and fat. And he was a great fast. That's like actually that's Imagine that. Imagine imagine if that thought actually is I, I'm shaking my boots in the other way. If if you see a fat person like that guy, sinful. Yep. You know what I mean? Like is that well, what yeah, we do? Is that what is that traditional Catholicism? Is that the Catholic well, faith? Uh, ju judging others, yes. Uh, judging yeah. others without knowing anything about them, yeah. That's yeah. It is so Catholic. <laughs> it is so trad. You can actually hear the moths die. I don't. I have no. You could actually hear the moths die. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is so trad. You can hear the moths dying. They're 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 plaintive screams as they go to their maker. Wow. That's that's ultra trad. That's that's tradical. That that's so deeply trad. Amazing. Okay, so it's a bunch of, course, of nonsense. You, yeah, what? If you can't if you can't hear the moths die, you're probably not a real trad. You're probably some kind of phony. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, he, before this show. Charles told me this anecdote, and he said, oh, you're not, you said you he said made you this up on the spot. I, <laughs> you he, said you wouldn't tell anyone. Did I say that? No, I didn't no. say that. No. You promised. 
that in this anecdote, um, someone asked him how trad, and then Charles said literally a random. Yeah, I, I said. He says, what happened was, he asked me about something. Where he goes, is it trad? And I said, yeah, it's, it's trad. He says, how trad? And I just threw out, so trad, you can hear the moths die. Based on nothing. Just random dribble. That's what we do here. On brand. Hey. <laughs> hey. Let me tell you something. If random dribble is so bad, why do so many of the great authorities in church and state constantly pour it out? Ha, ha, ha. Can't top that one, can you? I didn't think so. The Ivy League, the U.S. government, you name it. Now, if they can do it, why can't we? Because they've got the whip hand ready. All right. Chicago Jacobite says Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Vinny and Justin, shut that one right down. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 true, all right. I, there's not much of an argument for that. You know, when they put my feet to the fire, I saw the light. Uh <laughs> That's for sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I really can't argue with that. <laughs> All right. Uh, question from... <laughs> you okay? I've got the whip hand. Yeah. Whoop. All right. You uh, read Bows. Anything you say, Bows. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, question from Superfan Chicago Jacobite, who says, I want to thank Charles for discussing Children of the Green Gnome, a book I had long forgotten that I intended to read and is back on my list. I have a question. Why do you think so many Thomas disparaged Scotism and, in truth, the entire Franciscan tradition? This certainly appears most unseemly, to use a kind expression. It can't be jealousy over losing the Immaculate Conception disputation, could it? No one disputes that St. Thomas codified the perennial philosophy for posterity magnificently. But real differences do exist among various schools of perfectly orthodox thought. I have never been able to understand or even tolerate for long those who speak of a doctor of the church as if he were heretical. At least tolerate those who, uh, who should know better. What do you think, Charles? Well, I agree with you. Um, I mean... Of course, there is something of a difference to a great degree between St. Thomas and a lot of people who were called Thomists. But that aside, um, you know, and I've had one very uh, redoubtable Thomist of the originalist school, shall we say, say to me about uh, Duns Scotus and the Immaculate Conception, um, he was right for the wrong reasons. Uh, you know... The Franciscan school don't get heard from a lot outside the Franciscan schools, uh, which is a pity. My personal belief, such as it is, is that those schools of philosophy, Thomism, Scotism, Augustinianism, Lullism, you name them, uh, so long as they're orthodox, that is to say, so long as they accept the four creeds, 
they're sort of intended to act as correctives on each other. In other words, any one of them left to itself would go off the beam because they're all trying to describe the indescribable. Um, and as I've said before in this space, I'll say again, my favorite example of this were the Dominicans and the Jesuits arguing over grace versus free will. And it got to the point that where they were actually calling each other heretics over it. Well, the Pope shut them both down and he forbade them to speak about it any further. And he said, basically, there's no way you can answer the question here and you have no right to anathematize each other. So shut up. Mouths closed. End of story. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, because theological speculation, philosophical speculation and theological speculation can become great pleasures in themselves, which is fine. I mean, you, sh you shouldn't do what you don't enjoy, but uh, people get vested interests. And when they get vested interests, they will start to fight those who disagree with them, even if the disagreement is not over something that is a question of the deposit of faith. And I mean, I, I, I come back to geo and heliocentrism. I come back to creationism versus theistic evolution. Uh, there, there are a lot of questions. I mean, the reality of aliens. I don't believe in aliens. But if someone does and it doesn't detract from the faith, then, I mean, I might say he's wrong as wrong could be, but I can't anathematize him. I don't have that right. Um, you know, there, there was a time when a, a heavy school of thought amongst Catholic philosophers taught that uh, there were no uh, there were no people in the uh, southern hemisphere. I mean, how could they be? They'd all fall off. So nobody thought the world was flat, but they did believe some people that you couldn't have life, you couldn't have intelligent human life in the southern hemisphere. Well, that was a big argument. Now, obviously, one set objectively speaking, was right and one was wrong. But if they had anathematized themselves over it, when neither had the means of proving their case at that time, they would have been wrong. Why do you think Galileo was condemned? It wasn't because the church, the church didn't condemn him because of his heliocentrism. He was condemned because of the nasty way he attacked people who, who differed from him. And the interesting thing is that the Pope who condemned him was actually very much interested in the sciences and very close to a lot of the contemporary scientists of the day. Now, bear in mind, Galileo could not prove his theories. And he had a very insulting tone toward those who disagreed with him. And those people had the ear of the Pope. So they said, you've got to shut this guy down. And he did. As I say, had that Pope not been so interested in science and not really cared what scientists thought, he very possibly would, would have ignored Galileo completely. As it was, Galileo's punishment was to be put under house arrest in a country villa and fed and taken care of. I wouldn't mind that kind of a punishment myself. Hmm. Wouldn't have to worry about paying the rent anyway. 
Yeah, just just as a, I'm not really a philosophy guy, but I, I tell you what, as an outsider looking in at some of the philosophy discussions on the internet, or any discussion you know, on the internet, it's it, it just it, it, a discussion on the internet in general. If it's in depth, you're you're already in the danger zone, right? And yeah. but, but then but then you're dealing with really intelligent people. To be fair. Really intelligent, but but also intellectually proud people in a really complex argument, in a super complex, nuanced argument. And man, it's like who 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 does like I don't know who wants to do this. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't want to do this. Like I wouldn't it, it, it's not like, oh, you know. You know who I I made a friend with today online is this guy I, I who had a different point of view from me on philosophy on Reddit <laughs> said no one ever no you know like it's you're cruising for a bruising in my opinion but anyhow it's it's tough um I don't know I'll just leave it at that as an outsider looking in. All right. Uh, Will says, hi, will Charles give the historical background of the United States Senate and its development into what it is today? Sure. Sure. Uh, the Senate originally was intended and it, it, it was uh, intended to be the well, first, let's go back. The uh, of course, our Congress is vague, vaguely based upon the uh, Parliament of Great Britain, which has two houses, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Now, at the time of the American Revolution, the House of Lords were divided in two, the Lords Spiritual, who were bishops of the Church of England, and the Lords Temporal, who were hereditary peers, noblemen. So when the king made you the Earl of whatnot, or Baron somebody, you went into the House of Lords. Uh, the highest court in the kingdom was the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords. That was, uh, in a sense, the Supreme Court. And the Lord Chancellor had a, tr a threefold role. He was the Speaker of the House of Lords. He was the head of the judiciary. And he was, in a manner of speaking, like the Minister of Justice in a... Um, in a, a, a modern cabinet. So that was that was the way they worked. All right. And then the House of Commons, uh, they were the representatives of the cities and the countryside. And they were, just as it sounds, commoners. Well, when our thing was put together, um, the contractees, you might say, of the constitution with the states and there was several problems one is that the states were unequal in population um, and so they were faced with the problem the the old congress had been one one uh chamber and the votes were apportioned by numbers by population well this was not a good thing if you were part of a uh small state. So what they did was they 
created the Senate as the, the, the watchdog of the states on the federal government. So the state governments appointed or elected the uh, senators. They were not popularly elected. Now, there's some evidence from the Federalist Papers that the ultimate power of constitutional review, that is to say whether or not a law is constitutional, was originally intended to go to the Senate rather than the Supreme Court. And that makes sense because the states, as the contracting bodies, you could presume they were the ones who had the right to decide what the Constitution meant, or at least the majority among them. Now, to offset the fact that the House of Representatives would be, uh, the, the size of delegations would be tied to population, there would be two senators per state, equal number. Now, that, uh, the power of judicial review never really did fall to them. And after uh, Marbury versus Madison in 1832, it was usurped by the Supreme Court, which they've had ever since. In the meantime, the uh, problems over slavery were heating up. And so the question of the number of states admitted as free states versus slave states became very, very important. Because the majority of slave states, of course, would mean one thing. The majority of free states, uh, the Senate being a majority of free states, would mean something else. Uh, and this was why you had things like the Missouri Compromise, uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Because as new states began to be created in the West, it would have effects on the overall control of the Senate. So... When the slave states started falling behind in numbers, they said, right, all we need is an anti-slavery president, and we're out of here. And that's what happened. Uh, mind you, there were other issues involved as well, but this was a big part, control of the Senate. So the Civil War is fought. The southern states are dragged back, kicking and screaming. Time goes on, uh, and then it's decided in the beginning in the late 19th century, that the United States government needed a real overhaul and needed to be more democratized. And a key element of democratizing it was getting the Senate popularly elected. Now, this turned out to be kind of problematic because formally to become a senator, you had to be elected or appointed by your state government. And that meant, as a politician, you had to be able to impress other politicians. And that meant that you tended to get a much higher level of individual in the Senate than you did in the House of Representatives. The other thing is that, on the one hand, you had direct support of your state government, so you were less easy to lobby. And on the other hand, uh, you were directly responsible to the state government. Now. Remember that a congressman, you can get 10% of the 20,000 people, 2,000, to vote for his recall. You can be shed of him. But getting 20% of the state to vote for the recall of a senator is much, much harder unless it's a very small state. So when the uh, Constitution was changed and the senators became popularly elected, one, the states were no longer with any kind of a break on the federal government. Two, 
the senators became a much lesser group of people. Three, they uh, were no longer responsible to anyone except nominally the people of the state. And four, they were thus much more open to intimidation and corruption than they had been before. And that's where the Senate is now. All right, beautiful. All right, uh, John says, where does Charles get his news from? I make it up. That way I'm happier. Well, that that's true. You do make up a lot of things. Well, no, I mean, you, you saw the way the monarchy was restored in Romania last week. After the bloodless coup. Okay. Now so, Queen yeah. Margarita is, is ruling happily in Bucharest. And rumor has it that the same thing is going to happen in Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece, and Albania. All the Balkan states will be uh, monarchies again within uh, within a week. Wow, I just got the idea to come out with a newspaper that's just purely fake news, but instead of it being the worst things in the world, like, you know, what newspapers are nowadays, like, oh, here's the worst things in the world. Let's laundry list no. them. It would actually be the best things in the world. <laughs> Yeah, a 116-year-old man uh, marries a 35-year-old woman. Wow. That jackpot. All right. Well, it's better than you think. He's penniless. She's marrying for love. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I've just never met anyone like him. I love him. He doesn't have any money, so we'll live off my uh, my uh, the income from my oil shares. Wow! All right, final question today from John. He says, "What would you say are the top five most Catholic countries on the planet today?" That's easy: Liechtenstein, Monaco, San Marino, Andorra, and in some sense, uh, the Vatican. Okay. Um, it's kind of a little underwhelming because we we didn't even get a country there that's got a population of over... How about a country with a population that's greater than uh, the size of Los Angeles or Dallas or whatever? How about a population of over a million? Gondor. Is this funny to you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's very funny to me. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, it's extremely funny. No, I mean, I suppose if I were looking for one, I would say Poland... Uh, the Philippines, Malta. But they're all sliding. Poland sliding? I thought Poland was going a, a cool direction. Their government are. But their young people are going the wrong direction, a lot of them. How does that happen? I mean, isn't it... Well, it happens because they uh, they had a lot of communism and because the current government haven't been really in office long enough to change things around. They might get the chance. I mean, remember in Hungary, 
what, what are the two biggest things that have corrupted country after country in the West? The judiciary and academia. And secondarily, the government and media. Um, so what happens? When Orban begins to put the screws on academia, media, and the judiciary, everybody screams at him as, as being a fascist. Because they know that's, that, is, that is how they have become dominant. So the Polish government is is doing well, but the young we'll see people. What the future holds. But but the young people are slipping, and the young people are slipping because of education. So, what determines the? How, well, not just well, what determines also, education? Are are you saying like the remnants well, of communism is still like? In it's not just system. that. It's, it's also Americanization, Westernization. I mean, don't forget that a lot of young Poles today travel all over Europe and to America. And they pick up a lot of crap in those countries. But those countries are cool. So you're telling me that there is sort of this cool reverse evangelization almost thing based yeah. on well, what determines cool like because like, we live in a world where like america since like for like 200 years has been cool so america but, but what would america have to do to not be cool in the eyes of poland lose lose its money so money determines cool yeah of course it does i mean don't forget, we've been dominant culturally in Europe since the 1920s. And that came about precisely because not just of our victory in World War I, but our reshaping the map of Europe and uh, our suddenly magically going from a uh, debtor country to a creditor country. And everybody in Europe owed us. All the, all the governments, I mean, whether or not they paid us back another story finland did that's something but at any rate um and you know american jazz became really big um a lot of uh, a lot of americans came over here and uh, a lot of american entertainers came over here between the wars and became big um you know and that continued after the war um, we were we were big. We were well fed. Uh, we were casually dressed. We did whatever we wanted. We were loud and obnoxious. And young people, especially in a somewhat regimented society, tend to jump on that. Hmm. You know, you can easily fool young people with the call of freedom. Uh, well, stop and think about it. You're, you're you're in your first full fling of life. You're confronted with all sorts of abstract rules, and typically, nobody can really explain them to you in a rational way. Now, there are reasons for them, but unfortunately, people are likely to respond to your questions with, because I say so or we've always done it that way, or that's just the way it's done. 
which is, again, the worst possible answer you can give a young person. Uh, you, you, you really don't want to do that. So that means that if you're going to deal with young people and you want to defend some sort of standards or mores, you have to be able to explain why they exist. I mean, that's not true of all young people. Some of them, you know, you can just say, stare at the wall, and they'll say, okay. But if a kid's bright, he needs answers, and they need to be good ones, you know. Um, we often, you know, we were joking earlier about summer romances and all that, the importance of taking uh, the emotions of the young at face value in a sense in, in, in even though we know on, on one level that they're fleeting we always have to remember they're very real to the to the individual well similarly the conundra uh, that especially intelligent young people come up with we have to answer them honestly and truthfully we can't you know just say oh well you'll know better when you're older even if we know that to be true, even if we know that on a certain level, this question or that question actually cannot be adequately understood at their age, we can't just dismiss them. Okay. We have to. So what do you say? That? What? So what do you say? Well, what do you say is, I mean, you you, you admit that part. You say, look. Much as I, uh, much as you'll hate to hear it, and I'll hate to say it, there's a lot of this you really can't understand at your age. But let me explain the principle, and then one day it definitely will make sense to you. This ties into the pre-show. This is like the teenage love thing, like the summer, it is. The summer this is romance, where it's like, yeah, you don't know what love is, and just yeah. and the parents. You're says, just uh, saying that you you just you're old and you've never been in love. Well, it's, it's, it's true, and it's the same with trying to explain intellectual conundra. It is the same thing. It takes time, energy, thought. It has to be important to you. But I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the young people in your life, be they your, your children, your nephews and nieces, uh, your godchildren, friends, kids, whatever you find yourself with, the young people in your life should be your most important consideration because they're the future, you know? And the guidance you give them now, if it's good guidance, will pay off long after you're gone. You know, it, it's the old saying, the, the wise man plants a tree knowing that he'll never see it. Because it's not for him. And he knows it because he's not a moron. And he knows, all right, I'm planting these trees here. And maybe if they, if they last so long, maybe my grandchildren will benefit from them. But you see, he thinks ahead. He doesn't just think of the, of the now, of himself, of his own benefits and so on. Uh, he thinks of the future. And the future is not just personal. Because the future for you, yourself alone, is not going to last that long. Take it from me. You know, I just got this past week. Uh, 
the news that, and I hadn't known this, that an old friend of mine had died, Al Schubert, who, um, he was the last of a group of friends that I had uh, when I was in college. And um, I have a picture that I took of him. I have another picture that I, I can't look at because I'm the only one that's alive. This one, I took the picture, so I'm not in it. But all four of these guys are dead. That's what happens, you see. And I didn't know Alan died. And it was last year. I didn't know he died until a mutual friend told me a couple of days ago. Um, but that's what happens, ladies and gentlemen. So life does not last very long. We are like grass. It comes and it goes. So the young people are our future. And we have to deal with them as well and as carefully as we can. Um, and that means taking into account also their individuality, who they are as, as individuals, because um, one of the biggest mistakes you can make, and this is true of whether it's your children or, as I say, anybody else, is thinking one size fits all. It doesn't, because every kid has a different a different personality, which, on one level or another, has been his since conception. I know there's supposed to be a tabula rasa and all that, but my experience is not so. Uh, very often you'll have mothers tell you that even during the pregnancy, they kind of got an idea of the child's personality, the way it kicked, the way it did this or that. And then after birth, it just sort of, I mean, one thing I, I've learned in life it's not that you can tell the future from what it, the way a, a person is when they're young. But when they grow up and you're looking back over the course of their life, you can see how he was always the same man. I mean, there are variations or differences. Maybe if there was some dramatic occurrence, there was a big change one way or another. But you can see how from childhood, so-and-so was that guy. Now, maybe he had weaknesses he succumbed to or overcame. Maybe he had strengths that he didn't develop or did. You know, whatever. But you can see how it was piece of a piece of a piece of a piece of a piece. And so your job as a conscientious older person is to do your best to help the individuals who God has put in your path to be to the best of your ability, the best of their ability, whatever or whomever it is God has intended them to be. Um, I know if I were a real self-help person, I would say the best version of themselves possible. Well, and that's true if you understand that the best version of yourself is whatever it is God has in mind for you. And he's given you talents and he's given you weaknesses. And you have to work to strengthen or eliminate or overcome or work around the one and strengthen and develop the other. There's an old saying, the talents you're born with are God's gift to you. What you do with them in return is your gratitude to him. And I think that's very, very true. And I believe that 
you know, if if you see a young person as talented at the piano or at fishing or at reading or, or whatever, you do your best to encourage them in those pursuits so long as they, A, aren't sinful, and B, aren't, you know, totally pointless. Um, you have an obligation, I think, to try to help the young people in your life realize who they, they who they are and what God wants them to be. And yeah, that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of thought. Uh, but why do you think you're still here? If you're my age. Why have you been kept around when you could so easily have been taken off the board? And that at least that's how I feel about it. And that I have to admit, that's been very much on my mind this week. Uh, poor Al, you know, he was very rich, very wealthy man, was a CPA, never married, no children. Um, I don't suppose he had any family left because there was no obituary published, at least none that I could find online. So what did all his money do for him? Lived in Newport Beach. You know, had all the chicks he wanted. Uh, went boating all the time. He was a great guy, a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, what did he have? And that's the thing. The young people you leave behind you, that's what you have to, to offer God in the world. That's why, all kidding aside, I'm, I'm whenever any of our audience say that we've had a, a positive effect on them. I feel really, really great about that because, you know, it was true for my nephews and nieces in a certain sense is uh, true for our audience. If we've done you any good at all, uh, I'm really grateful for it because it means that we've done something useful. You know, um, and not to get too mawkish, but uh, that's how I've felt with all the young people in my life. And I've been very blessed. Um, very, very blessed indeed. I wish that my contemporaries had seen it the same way. You know, when I, I hear about all of the atrocious parenting so many of my, uh, my peers did, What what were they thinking? You know, what were they thinking? You only get one go round, or if you're lucky, if you have grandchildren, sometimes twice, but no more in helping to mold a generation. You only get once, maybe twice. That's it. You've got to put thought into it. It's got to be really, really important to you. It's, it's, it's that simple. And it's the same if you're a teacher. If you're a college professor, uh, you're a scout leader, anything at all. I mean, it's obviously not the same as if they're related to you because the obligation then is a lot deeper. But even if they aren't, um, that's a trust that is so important and so sacred in my humble estimation. You know, if you're a priest or a nun and you're dealing with young people, 
anything. Uh, man, you have to put thought and time into it. You can't be, you can appear to be glib because they like the tone, but you can't really be glib. It has to be important to you. If you're serious and dour all the time, they don't want to hear it. And I don't blame them. I didn't. But you need to be thoughtful. And for you, my young friends out there who are hearing this, if you didn't hear it from your parents or anybody else, when your time comes to be parents and aunts and uncles and all the rest of it, Make it one of the most important things in your life, more important than any of your hobbies, more important than, again, depending on how closely connected you are, more important than your own good time and your own, uh, uh, your own pleasure. Because, you know, pleasures come and go. We are so constructed that by the time we die, if we don't do it quickly, most of our pleasures that we've known leave us. Now, if when that time comes, you have a sense of accomplishment in having helped those younger than yourself do something with their lives, that's ever so much better than having spent your life in pursuit of pleasures which won't last anyway. And don't get me wrong, nobody loves their smoking, drinking, and eating more than I do. But the time will come when those things are meaningless. Um, there was a, a wonderful um, poem, the Crusaders song. Oh, man, I wish I could remember the, the words. But there's a line in it. Uh, where at death are earthly pleasures lost forever, lost in shame. And that's true. So anyway, it's enough of my late night sermonette, but I um, meant what I said in a non-judgmental way. Oh, well, thank goodness. That was my question. No, yes. <laughs> how, I, how do we I, take I, this? Well, in non-judgmental, I mean, <laughs> uh, and, and, and if any of my peers are listening, I, I, I don't want you to feel that I'm, I'm you know, I'm not bagging on you. Uh, I don't want you to feel guilty, no matter how you screwed up your family, uh, just because they're, you know, hollow shells of human beings whom you destroyed. I don't think you should feel badly about that because obviously they didn't deserve to have decent parents. There's a judgment somewhere in there. but There is, but it's kind of hidden. <laughs> it's, it's in there somewhere. I can feel it. I know it's in there. You know, it's like dowsing. Dowsing for judgmentalism. It's in there somewhere. So I can feel it in there somewhere. There's a there's a bit of judgmentalism in there. I don't know where, where it's going with it. It's in there someplace. No, I, I, I think you're right. I think there was definitely a touch of judgmentalism there, but I, I can't quite put my finger on it. And why should I? Oh, man. All right, that's it for this episode. Uh, what a perfect closing. Um, 
If you want to hear the pre-show that we alluded to, it was an excellent pre-show. You can sign up to become a patron for as low as $5 a month. Uh, we'd love to have you. Um, and you'd get free shipping, free shipping and handling. handling in the Tumblr House bookstore. Man, the patrons are, are have really been taking advantage of that lately. Um, yeah, but you know what they're not ordering? <laughs> what are they not ordering? All right, the patrons are just ordering books and some merch. They haven't gone for the toasters. They haven't gone for the towels. They haven't gone for the television sets. Those things are all gathering dust in the gift shop. Only the walk-in people are taking those. That's right. That's absolutely right. So lots of steals of deals over there. <laughs> in the, in the, <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's the, the 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 worst offender, so to speak, is that stoplight at first in Huntington. <laughs> that thing just flashes on immediately, and boom, stuff flies out of the back of the truck, and then the truck goes on. You know, well, you know how the, how the cops are if they try to pick up the stuff. I oh, get back in the truck. What you doing? Move along, move along. You see, that's a great light. Now move along. But officer, I move along now. I'll run you in. All right. What is it if it's Monday? Oh, that's well, that's a judgment. Well, what may it be if it's Monday? I don't know how to reframe that no, one. Well, what could it be if it's Monday? Ooh, ooh. What could it be if it's Monday? Okay, what could it be? If it's it very well might be off the menu. Yeah. And what about the soul you save? Well, I think, conceptually speaking, there's every possibility it could be your own. See you next time, everyone. God bless. Stay non judgmental, at least till next week. Then you can forget about it.